This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Joanna Brooks. She is chair and associate professor of English and comparative literature at San Diego State University. She writes often at Religion Dispatches and blogs and tweets at Ask Mormon Girl. I spoke with her on October 6, 2011, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was in Studio West in San Diego. This interview is included in our show, Mormon Demystified. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. What? I don't know why I think you're shorter than me. <laughs> well, you know I'm wearing wedges these days because I refuse to let my son be taller than me yet. <laughs> so I've gotten taller recently. I don't know if you've noticed. I have noticed. It's, it's a losing battle, but I'm going to fight to the bitter end. Hi, Joanna. Hi, Krista. <laughs> it's nice to have you at the other end. It's really nice to be here. <laughs> I'm... I'm I'm hearing some um okay I'm turning my headphones down but I'm also hearing an echo on the other end Chris are you hearing that Okay Yeah no I'm I'm hearing it maybe a headphone volume thing Do they feel loud I no, actually, you guys are coming in fairly quiet, and we are getting the echo back, I guess. I don't know if it's hmm. monitors coming back through on your side. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm still hearing it. I've got... That's, that, that was a lot. That came in a lot better. Okay. I've got my headphones turned down to... A, I, can, I can turn them down a little bit more. Okay. It's over there. Where... where where are you? Where? Hmm? Oh, San Diego. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I will. Okay. I don't think she'll mind. So, Joanne, I just want to tell you, um, we do a live tweet, our interviews. Mm-hmm. And I just recently had somebody who I didn't tell them that beforehand, and they had all these new followers after the interview, and they were kind of surprised. But it's not being broadcast anywhere, but but people are going to be picking up nuggets for Twitter on that's, the other end of the class. That's just fine. Okay. Oh, more followers. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think you'd mind. <laughs> no. Um, so, all right, I think maybe it's gone away now. Has it gone away? Uh yeah, okay. Oh, there's still a little bit there. Can I hear? Okay, I can hear a little bit of my own echo, but... Can you? All right. Mm-hmm. You don't You don't want that because it will drive you crazy. Yeah, they, I mean, the echo's coming back through the ISDN on your... Like, it's coming back to us on your side. That's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing echo back coming from the ISDN. Should I turn them down? Yeah, that, that would help. This green, this green thing yeah. right here. Yeah, that that probably will. Is that's that better? done it? That's a, that's done it. Yeah, I'm not okay. hearing an echo anymore. Okay, perfect then. Yeah, great. Okay, do you need um, Joanna? Why don't you t- tell me something mundane uh, just for sound check, like um, what you had How's for breakfast? <laughs> what well, has this? Last night when I was reading the site and preparing, I found out you do hot yoga. <laughs> yeah. So do I. <laughs> do you? I'm a, 
I'm a Bikram person. Are you a Bikram person? Well, kind of. I the do. Brand Bikram. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're like the let's say unorthodox Bikram. Um, I, I go to this studio that does vinyasa that's heated, and then they have oh. something that they call hot yoga, and it's exactly like Bikram, although it's a little bit less sadomasochistic, if you know what I mean. Oh yeah, I did it last <laughs> night. So, so I, I wanted to have a hot yoga bonding moment with you. I love it. Krista. I love it. Okay, and I'll say this. When I'm traveling, I go to Bikram classes because in Bikram, you know what you're going to get, right? And there's oh, yeah. so much weird no yoga question. out there. And it's not worth risking. I have amazing stories of spiritual connections with people just wearing my Bikram t-shirt. Really? <laughs> Random stuff. We'll save them for another time. Okay. But cosmic things happen All right. when you wear your Bikram yoga t-shirt. Okay, that's another interview then. <laughs> um, are you ready for us? Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, so do you have any questions for me before we start? Do you kind of no, know? No, I'm really... Yeah. This is... I'm really glad to be here. Great. I and think this is going to be fun. Great. And we get to have a real conversation. We'll have, you know, 60 to 90 minutes. It doesn't... I kind of have an idea about where we'll go, and um, and I'll help lead. But uh, if mm-hmm. it, we we can we can let it surprise us too. Um, okay. And so where I start with everybody, which in in the, in this case is is much more kind of germane to what we're going to talk about the whole time. But but I, I I would like to hear just something if you could talk about the religious and spiritual background of your childhood. Um, you know, ha- I mean, we're going to talk a lot about about Mormon tradition and faith and your life in that. But how would you start to talk about what it was like to grow up in a in a devout Mormon family? What would you What would you describe? Every time I tell the story of my Mormon upbringing, I feel a very strong sense of obligation to talk about my ancestors. Mm-hmm. It's a very traditional Mormon way of telling the story. Do you want me to tell it that yeah, way? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um. My ancestors, my grandmother's, my mother's mother's side of the family were Mormon pioneers. Um, Some converted in England in the 1850s um, during a time of tremendous economic upheaval, depression, and boarded ships crossed the ocean, um, traveled to the Midwest, and then either pulled hand carts or went with ox carts across the plains to northern Utah and southern Idaho. Um, My father's side of the family converted in the 1930s. My father's mother was an Oki who went to pick cotton in Arizona. Hmm. His father was uh, from a family of copper miners, and they found the church in Arizona where there's always been a large population of LDS people. So they converted. And everyone moved out to Los Angeles um, during the Depression. My grandmother moved down from Salt Lake City with her mother because there was no work. Um, Same goes for my father's side of the family. And I was raised in an Orange Grove suburb of Los Angeles (laughs) um, in a vibrant, um, very committed Mormon community. Um, And we felt ourselves very much a part of what I call the Book of Mormon Belt. Okay. There were enough of us. You know, they, we were at sort of the southern end of the Book of Mormon Belt. If you imagine this sort of geographic crescent huh. stretching from Orange County through Las Vegas, Salt Lake City, and north to Canada through Idaho, um, we felt like we were at, at the southern tip of that. Hmm. There were a lot of Mormons I grew up with, and, and my world was entirely you know, Mormon in all of its social dimensions, 
my best friends, what I did with most of my time. Um, although, you know, we were a minority and, you know, lived in regular neighborhoods. But I was raised by very devout parents. Um, par- my parents lived a level of orthodoxy that their parents had not lived. Hmm. Um, were fully committed, you know, to the church as a way of life. My father served as uh, the, the equivalent of the pastor of our congregation three separate times during my childhood. This is all volunteer. This right, is not his right. day job. Right. Um, my mother was a terrific genealogist um, and fully committed, like my father, to serving in the church. And Mormonism was my whole world, my whole imagination, everything I wanted from the time I was a very young child um, profoundly shaped my understanding of what it was to be alive um, and what my goal should be as a, as a human being. You know, one thing that is really striking to me um, that I've known intellectually, but and and I have delved into Mormonism a bit, but it really came through very dramatically to me in your writing and your stories. Is that on the one hand, um, as you talk about, and many people talk about, it, this is a young church; it's a young tradition, and, and, and for that reason, it's evolving. Um, at the same time, it, there's such a thick culture and identity and memory, right? This. Mm-hmm. This connection to history and this, you know, how the, how that history is kept alive, the genealogy, right, that your mother um, is not alone in, in being completely intensely committed to. It's really, it's really interesting that. I always grew up with a powerful sense that my ancestors were profoundly connected to my everyday life. And it's not unusual in a lot of Mormon families. We have stories about you know, people popping in from the other side of the veil, as we call it, you know, right. to, you know, protect, watch over, guide, comfort. I grew up with a sense that my ancestors were present. Hmm. Um, and especially the ancestors that I knew through family stories had made great sacrifices to pursue this distinctive, you know, spiritual way of life. They were they were there and they were invested in in my choices and 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 my mother's choices and my father's choices. They were there for us. You somewhere in your writing, you you tell a story. I, I believe this is in your your memoir that you're that you're writing now. But you you um, sent us some of that. It's very beautiful, very beautifully written. Um, Thank you. And I think this story was there. You you talked about your father when you were a little girl um, using or your parents using cotton gloves to illustrate some ideas about mortality and the human spirit. Can you tell that story? Oh, absolutely. Um, back in the 1970s, one of the leaders of the church named Boyd K. Packer um, did what we call an object lesson. It's sort of a classic Mormon teaching mode where he used a cotton work glove. Um, he slipped it on his hand, standing at the pulpit at one of the general conferences, and, and told a story. It demonstrated how to explain mortality to children. And so when I was a little girl, the way I learned what this life was about was on a Monday night, um, Mormons convene family home evenings on Monday nights. The home teaching of spiritual principles from from the religion is done around the kitchen table. Um, so my parents, when I was probably six or seven years old, sat us down. There were four children around the table in our little house in the Orange Grove suburbs, you know, Formica kitchen table. Mm-hmm. And my father had a cotton work glove, and he slipped it on, and he held it up, and he said, this is your body. And he held up his, his living hand. He said, this is your spirit. And he put the glove on the hand, and he said, when you're born, your spirit goes into your body. 
and he says, and, and, and there's a veil of forgetfulness that's drawn across your mind. You don't remember all the things your spirit knew before it came to this earth. And he said, and then he pulled the cotton glove off his hand and he laid it on the table and there it was sort of limp. And, and he wiggled his fingers again. He said, and when you die, your spirit leaves your body, but it's still, it's still, it continues. It still, it still goes on. Hmm. Um, and it was, it's a beautifully simple metaphor, but very, very powerful. Yeah. Um, it, in the way it's impacted how I think about mortality. Right. And and something else um, that's implicit in your story um, and that I, I'm not sure people, a lot of people really know about the Mormon tradition is that there is a great um, regard for the life of the mind. Um, I mean, you have quoted... I believe passages from Mormon sacred texts, the glory of God is intelligence. You became a scholar, and um, and my sense is that you always felt like this really had a blessing on it, that it was a very traditional thing to do in a way. Would that would that be right? Absolutely. I mean, from the time I was a, a little girl, the stories I heard were of people like the founder of the religion, Joseph Smith, who had dared to ask pretty profound questions at a young age. I mean, the founding story is Joseph Smith at 14 asking God which church he should join and having and studying in the scriptures to try and find an answer and then finally seeking for an answer in prayer. I mean, I I was taught from the time I was little to take that sort of process very seriously for myself, that if there was a question I had, I was to study it out. And in the scriptures... Um, a tremendous amount of energy and time is is spent in Mormon youth studying scriptures, and we have a lot of scriptures. <laughs> right, we right. Have more scriptures. Right. Book <laughs> well, of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Philippi Price. You know, our Bibles are fatter. Right. <laughs> and we, I mean, we were taught to memorize and study and underline, um, and then also to pray about things. So the pursuit of of knowledge has been an important part of Mormon culture as I've experienced it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is just, I'm just curious about this. So you, uh, you're a scholar of literature with, with a certain focus on Native American literature, or that's something you've, you've written about. Does that have any connection to the connections that are drawn between Mormons and Native Americans in, in the Book of Mormon? I mean, it was, no. No? Okay. No. Uh, what, what happened was I... Um, it was more of a social movement thing. I've studied race and religion in literature and especially in American intellectual history. And uh, I became a feminist in the 1990s at BYU. And one of the important things at that time, even at BYU, was to learn traditions Brigham from Young other, University. Yeah, yeah, Brigham Young University was to yeah. learn. We knew we needed to learn not just Anglo-American literature. We needed to learn Chicano literature and Native American literature and African-American literature. And so I made that a part of my professional work. Okay. So it's not. It's not. It's not. It's not from the Book of Mormon. Okay. <laughs> I just wondered. Um, yeah. So, you know, one of the things um, that you write about. I mean, you are a scholar, but really, you're a journalist too. You. I think you're one of the most. I think of you as one of the most active journalists out there now in places like uh, Religion Dispatches, and you know, in the in the blogosphere, in the online world. Um, really reporting uh, on um, not just Mormon issues, religion in, in public life, but with a, with a focus on Mormonism and also providing perspective from the inside that's very, that's very hard to get elsewhere. Um, and one of the things you write about a lot, you name, <laughs> uh, 
as a Mormon is that Mormons are aware that they are considered to be weird and that, that this, this, this word weirdness and strangeness um, and, uh, I don't know, parody uh, certainly is out there when you have two Mormons running for president. And, and what impresses me also that is that you've done some pretty sophisticated, self-reflexive thinking about you know, where this came from and also the difficulty Mormons have in, in kind of addressing it forthrightly and directly. And so I just I wanted to go through some of that, you know, some of those things mm-hmm. that keep being brought up. I don't actually want to start mm-hmm. with polygamy, <laughs> but we'll get to polygamy next <laughs> because that's the big one. Um, but I just so I want to start in a, a little bit bigger place with that, you know, that you... When you explain Mormonism, um, you begin with the fact that it was founded by restorationists. It's a restorationist tradition. And, 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 I, and I just want you to explain, you know, what, what you mean by that and why it's important in even starting to understand this tradition. It's important to understand that the roots of Mormonism are, are firmly embedded in American Protestantism. Um, and during the early 19th century, especially in frontier areas, which at that time meant Ohio um, and, and the Midwest, an entire class of people who had evacuated New England, who had been sort of, New England had pushed them out. They weren't able to hang on and make it work for whatever reason. They were seeking their fortunes further west. Um, also realized that they were being pushed out of traditional Protestantism by an ever more technical theology um, and an ever more articulated uh, sense of organizational divisions, sectarianism. You know, so Presbyterians were fighting uh, Episcopalians right. and Methodists over theological minutiae. And these people found themselves on the frontier with this strong sense to make it new. What an American impulse. Yeah. <laughs> and... So the restorationists believed that all of this accumulation of technical theology could be swept aside and sort of washed out by a return to the powerful primitive energies of the early Christian church and that the gifts of the spirit could stand in for a proper theological education as a guide to how to live a proper Christian life. And we think of all of this um, as part of the Second Great Awakening as the umbrella term. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And some people know it as the Campbellite movement. And, and it spawned a number of Christian denominations that remain today, including the Disciples of Christ. Um, and Mormonism, its founding impulses were in this restorationist movement. Now, where we went from there was a significant degree more innovative than other branches. I mean, ours led to the notion of an open canon and additional books of scripture, right, right. a much more robust sense of the visionary, um, uh, innovation of an entire dimension of ritual life after 1845 in Mormon temples. Um, so we were an especially innovative strand of this desire to restore and revitalize Christianity. Mm-hmm. And so you talk about, you know, the fact that you have the, the word you use uh, often about your encounters with people who don't consider you to be Christian is that for you, that is a strange experience and a strange idea that people have. It is. And it's I've been encountering it since I was very young um, in I was born in the early 70s. And, and when I was in junior high school, 
um, it became clear to me that there was an organized anti-Mormon movement. The term anti-Mormon is abused quite a bit um, within the community, but there was actually an organized movement um, in some very conservative Christian churches and seminaries to expose Mormonism um, as a cult um, or as a fraud, um, as a deceptive as a, as a deceptive religion that tried to convince people it was about Christianity when it really wasn't. Um, and, and I encountered this from classmates and in social settings, this sort of, you know, a desire to correct me and tell me I wasn't really Christian. A local church, you know, had a billboard out front. They were screening a movie called The Godmakers, which was circulating a lot in the 1980s, a, a produced film um, exposing elements of Mormon belief that were esoteric and therefore considered anti-Christian. Mm. Um, and, you know, it broke my heart. I cried. I mean, we can drive by the church and, you know, my mom said, yeah, they're showing the movie. A lot of your friends go there. And sure enough, there were notes in my locker and notes mm-hmm. in my yearbook. And, you know, people would go to their Presbyterian church down the block on Sundays. And I knew that the pastor was displaying Mormon undergarments and sort of making fun of them. And that was, you know, as if the age of 12 isn't just humiliating enough. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. right. That felt pretty awful. Um, and so and it was and it was organized. And, and I, we encountered it lots of spaces that, you know, lots of institutional spaces of conservative Christianity in Southern California. It was just happening. It was happening on the radio and happening in youth meetings. Um, and it always just profoundly baffled me when people said, well, you're not Christian. Um, you worship a different Jesus. And I remember my sister, actually, who was 10 years old at the time, had been invited to a child's activity at a local Christian church with a friend. And they confronted her. I mean, she's 10. Mm-hmm. And they confronted her. They said, you don't believe in the same Jesus. And she says, well, I believe in the one that was born of Mary and who died on the cross. Which one do you believe in? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, so it's always struck me as strange. But as an adult now, as someone who's studied theology a little bit along the way, I can appreciate that there are significant differences between Mormonism and mainline Protestantism. I mean, let's be candid, there are. Um, But as someone whose faith um, and whose Mormon-founded faith has centered a great deal around um, Jesus Christ and thinking about the atonement and the power of forgiveness and grace in everyday life, it it still is strange Hmm. to encounter the notion that Mormons aren't Christians. And, And Christian then reveals itself to become a word that's used instrumentally, perhaps, to authorize some forms of belief and not others, Hmm. but not to actually describe the way an individual relates to the notion of Jesus Christ. Hmm. It's been, it's interesting to watch also how that, the the question uh, came up in the last election season when Romney was a candidate, you know, of whether he was Christian. It's come up again, although it seems to have some twists and turns, right? I mean, you've, you've Mm -hmm. had Fox News, um, in the summer, uh, as the race was just taking shape, saying uh, Romney's obviously not a Christian. But more recently, um, and I believe I got this from a tweet that was sent around from you, that Pat Robertson said Mitt Romney is a very good Christian. Is that An right? outstanding Christian. An outstanding Christian. Yeah, I sense a thaw. I actually do. Um, it makes me very hopeful. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, th- th- to be candid, there are things that Mormon, that the LDS Church continues to do that to distinguish ourselves. For example, the church doesn't accept other baptisms. One has to be rebaptized into our church, that, and that would put a distance between us and other Christians. But mm-hmm. anyway, go ahead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so let's keep going on uh, the attributes of Mormonism that seem weird. 
Okay. And polygamy is clearly the first thing that comes up. And, and in fact, a couple of years ago when I did a, an interview with a Mormon scholar, with Robert Millett, actually really just trying to, to get an orthodox basic view of Mormonism, you know, I said, we're, we're just not going to talk about polygamy because polygamy gets so much airtime, not to mention uh, TV drama time. Um, mm-hmm. I think what I got out of you, I get out of your writing that was a little bit new to me is how much a source of tension and discussion, um, shame, debate, uh, this history of polygamy and its 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 place still kind of in the history and theology. How how much a source of that it is in among Mormons? Absolutely, I think the words ambivalence and shame um, are actually very powerful words for describing how many Mormons feel about our polygamous history. Um, even in my own family tree, I have one great-great-grandmother who threatened to cut off her husband's ears if he took a second wife. <laughs> and I have one great-great-grandmother who was, you know, a plural wife. Um, one of the things that makes polygamy very complicated for Mormon people is, is not only its presence in our history. And if you look at American visual culture from the late 19th and early 20th centuries, it is not surprising that polygamy continues to be the number one image associated with Mormons today. It was so prevalent in turn-of-the-century visual culture and so sensationalized. What do you mean by visual culture? Fo- photography that was out there? Or? Newspaper. I was uh-huh. just in an archive of, of Mormon um, print and visual artifacts over the weekend. You know, greeting cards that showed old maids with their suitcases packed in the sign, you know, Utah with an arrow, dead ahead, you know, huh. that were sold in cosmopolitan areas of the East Coast, you know, covers of popular newspapers like Frank Leslie's Illustrated Newspaper, which circulated very widely showing, you know, hundreds of women from Europe um, entering Utah through like the mouth of a skull, you know, <laughs> and all of them marked as polygamous wives. Huh. Um, I mean, so just massive amounts of, of American political and popular cultural imagery um, just fastening the notion of polygamy to the notion of what it means to be Mormon. So I'm not surprised the imagery remains. But for Mormons, it's a much more intimate question as well. And the fact is that although the church um, abolished the practice of polygamy in in 1890, the doctrine of polygamy remains very much on the books. Hmm. And there are even um, ceilings done, and ceilings is a technical term for an eternal marriage, in Mormon temples where it continues to be the policy that a man can be sealed. Let's say a man is widowed. He can be sealed for the eternities to a second wife if a woman... uh, is widowed, she can't be sealed for the eternities to a second husband. So it is a live issue. I have women I'm very close to who absolutely believe that, I mean, and these are perfectly assimilated, you know, (laughs) normal, everyday kind of folk um, who absolutely believe that polygamy is the order of heaven and that they very well may be asked to live it and they're prepared to make that sacrifice. I have other women I'm very close to who have sworn to their husbands that you will never do this to me. Um, and so there's a very, the question. So it's a discussion generates. people still have that 
that Mormon Absolutely. couples have. Absolutely. And, yeah. and a lot of private pain is carried about it. And there are jokes we make to diffuse it. You know, Mormon women are always joking. Eh, couldn't you see the sense in polygamy? I'd love to have a second wife to help me out right about now. <laughs> you know, which is like the old right. Ms. Magazine article, I want a wife. Right. right? This classic <laughs> feminist. Yeah, I want a second wife. Right. You know, in fact, when I was visiting with some, you know, polygamous families about a year and a half ago in southern Utah, you know, child care was never an issue. There was always someone around. <laughs> I know. That is envy- enviable. You're right. So Mormon women makes these jokes all the time, but it cloaks for a lot of observant men and women a tremendous tension um, over an idea they find repugnant. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, you know, that kind of leads me, I think, in a way to something that's also very unusual in Mormon theology and, and certainly a departure from from the other monotheistic traditions about uh, God as a male-female couple, that there's... a Mother and a father. There's a heavenly mother as well as a heavenly father. Is that is that correct? Is that how you would describe it? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a wonderful hymn written by one of Brigham Young's one of Brigham Young's wives, <laughs> Eliza R. Snow, <laughs> right. who wrote um, a hymn that we still sing today. And the lines go: "In the heavens, our parents single know the thought makes reason stare." Um, and she talks about how she knows she has a mother there. You know, it's just logical. Um, you know, Mormons view the family as the model for the eternities. This is a very distinctive element of our theology. Um, and we understand parenting as being modeled on the work of heavenly parents. Um, unfortunately, if you went to your average Mormon congregation, you wouldn't hear Heavenly Mother mentioned, like, at all on the course of a regular Sunday. Right. So, I mean, this is something I hear in your writing as a feminist, that you— um for you, this is a really positive image for women that you want to have a comeback. It can be a very positive image for women. Mm-hmm. I mean, inclusive liturgy has been very important to a number of religious traditions, yeah. you know, in the 20th and 21st centuries. Um, and the fact is, we, we do believe, it is an orthodox belief, that, you know, the lives we lead on earth are preparations to share in, um, share in, a kind of godhood, you know, what comes after this. God in the Mormon universe likes peers, you know, mm. and that the, as we gain experience here on earth, the goal is to learn enough um, and understand enough, hence again the importance of knowledge, to become peers with God. Um, and that's, and women are entitled to that same path of progression. And so, you know, the notion that um, God is male and female um, is very positive for me. And and so and again, you know, from the outside looking in, um, you'd, you'd say this of every religious tradition too. But there, you know, there are there are women have had struggles in, in Mormon tradition to, in many particular ways, to to seem as peers to men, um, and then at the same time. Uh, I think there's a really vivid image that actually you don't have to look very hard to start seeing everywhere of the strong, powerful Mormon woman. Um, I mean, I wonder if you think that has a connection to this theology. Uh, I don't know. How do you think about that? And you're you're in that tradition too. I mean, it's it was uh, was it Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, who's a Mormon woman, who coined this phrase: "Well-behaved women seldom make history." That's right. And she's a great intellectual at Harvard. 
And right. she's very, there's nothing strange about her and all those things about her in the Mormon cultural universe. Is that, is that correct? <clears throat> I wouldn't say that any of us who attain the kind of profile that Laurel has um, live without a number of contradictions. Um, the, just to be very plain, the church's political and institutional history has been openly anti-feminist. The church um, gave a great deal of you know, effort and put a great deal of effort and resources behind fighting the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, in the same way that it put a great deal of resources behind fighting, you know, uh, marriage equality in recent years for gay and lesbian couples. Um, leaders of the church have given very conservative counsel over the pulpit in the past 30 years about women needing you know, to stay home with their children. We don't hear that message quite as much anymore. And the fact is that Mormon women work outside the home at the same, at a rate, you know, very comparable to that national, the national average. But we've heard that counsel. Um, It's also the fact that priesthood is gender segregated and not just priesthood offices, but, you know, basic administrative offices and the running of congregations are gender segregated. Sunday school presidents are not women. Um, Right. There's no priesthood to mention that ward clerks membership clerks are not women mm-hmm. women do not and have never given the prayers at general conference and you know seemingly there's no theological rationale why and these things grate on on women mm-hmm. they grate on progressive women um and uh and and they're upsetting they're frustrating um there is uneven uh unequal gender language in temple ceremonies um, and yet at the same time, there is so much strength women draw from our tradition. We have the example of our pioneer foremothers who made incredible sacrifices, which required tremendous physical, emotional, spiritual strength to participate in this amazing innovation, this amazing building of a Zion community out on the frontier, um, you know, we have the example of early women leaders of the church who claimed a fuller share of authority than women today claim. Hmm. Um, and we have a tradition that teaches us from the time we're young that we're we're supposed to use our own minds. We can speak directly to God through prayer. We are each responsible for receiving inspiration that can guide our lives, um, for taking ourselves seriously, for taking our experience on this earth very seriously. So, you know, there are contradictions, um, and each woman in the church manages them in her own way. They're not a big deal for some women. For some women, they're a very big deal. Um, they discourage full activity and full membership. There are women who continue to identify as Mormon even though they really don't participate in the day-to-day life of their local congregations because it's just difficult after a while to deal with contradictions, and every woman manages them her own way. And, I mean, this is a part of your story, too, having— Having had that wholehearted, um, that whole body world uh, of Mormon belief and culture that you grew up with, that you described when we first started to speak, and then going to college and and in your early twenties, um, experiencing a real rift with the tradition. Yes, I I grew up in a very conservative, 
you know, part of Southern California, Orange County, you know, Republican Valhalla, (laughs) and um, went away to Brigham Young University, and there met, for the first time in my life, um, intellectuals, liberals, and feminists right there at BYU. And the Mm -hmm. university had wonderful feminist faculty and wonderful progressive male intellectual faculty who were tremendous role models to me and who opened up to me this entire world of Mormon liberal thought, this intellectual tradition that I'd never really had any access to um, until that point. And then um, in the early 1990s, just about the time I was graduating from college, tensions within the Mormon community and, and within Brigham Young University came to a head. And a number, uh, several faculty were essentially fired um, from Brigham Young University um, for reasons, the university had its reasons, but it was very clear that feminist faculty were being targeted. A significant number of feminist faculty left voluntarily, sensing the you know terrible climate for academic freedom. BYU was censured. Um, and that same year, one of the um, high-ranking leaders of the church gave a speech declaring that feminists and intellectuals and gays and lesbians were the three greatest dangers to the church. And that fall... Six feminists and intellectuals were excommunicated. And watching all of this as a 21-year-old who had just come into this sense of herself as a Mormon and a Mormon feminist and a Mormon feminist on a path towards a career as a scholar, it was devastating. Um, I'd done—I'd made all of my choices within the framework of Mormonism. It was everything to me. From the time I was a little girl, you know, the idea of Zion— um, you know, as a place for the pure in heart, as a chance to renew the earth, mm-hmm. um, meant everything. I still get emotional talking about it. How mm-hmm. crazy! <laughs> Twenty years ago. <laughs> so I mean, so there, you know, yeah. Zion was our ideal, and um, I didn't know how I could be a danger. I just, I just couldn't figure it out. So that was hard. That was hard, and it took, you know, 20 years to sort it out. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> and it's not all sorted yet. You yeah. know, we have a very long view of time in Mormonism. <laughs> yeah. And so, and to that point, what's so interesting about you, um, and, and I think you, rep, you, you you give voice to also others in your tradition, um, where you are now, as I sense it, is that you you are also insisting on this experience of yours, uh, the the unorthodoxy that's you know the, the the way you would describe yourself as as yourself as unorthodox in con- comparison with that little girl, is still is still something that you live out inside the tradition, that you are part you and others like you are part of the very much a part of the unfolding and growth and evolution of this young tradition. Absolutely. I think it's a particular... As a community, Mormonism has had its historical ups and downs. We are a very broad movement, actually. There are... Historically, we've had a lot of splinter groups. There are a lot of people who have lived the Mormon story in different ways. Um, With the, you know... powerful emergence of the institutional church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the LDS church that has now about 14 million members of record around the world. With that sort of powerful institutional emergence in the late 20th century, 
there was a disciplining of um, diversity, a desire to really correlate, rein in, centralize, bureaucratize, and manage Mormon thought, um, Mormon speech. And that, you know, not all of us are correlated Mormons. Not all of us experience this tradition the same way. Um, And the experience of the early 1990s was very chilling for those of us who love the tradition but find ourselves doing it from unorthodox points of view. There are still many of us who, you know, run the tapes of our excommunications in our heads all the time. (laughs) Were you Um, excommunicated? No, 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 no. not even close. No, but I mean, like, like, Mm -hmm. you know, playing like fan, like, nightmare fantasy oh, like okay. what will i say if i get called in and like <laughs> they have the file folder of, and this is this happened to my our, you know our role models in the early 90s you know that you walk in and there they are and there's a file of everything you've written and you know the poor stake president the local authority's been assigned to your case's highlighted parts and you're going to sit there and try to make a case why you still belong and you know there's a lot of us who run with those fears in our head all the time now Truthfully, the church hasn't excommunicated people for intellectual reasons as it did in the early 90s um, for a while. We haven't seen that, but it's, it was very chilling. And so to, you know, generously and open-heartedly and lovingly insist that there is a place in this robust tradition for people who are not Orthodox is a very radical statement in contemporary Mormonism. But I sense that a lot of people are making that statement and they're talking to each other and they're telling their stories. And The Internet has been amazing for unorthodox Mormons, uncorrelated Mormons. Some of us call ourselves open Mormons. Um, there have been podcasts, series that now get, you know, thousands upon thousands of downloads that explore, you know, complicated historical, theological, cultural aspects of the tradition that we just don't talk about within the institutional framework of Orthodox Mormonism. There are blogs that allow people to connect and interact um, with a degree of privacy or anonymity and to share their feelings and thoughts, even when they find themselves coming from a fairly unorthodox perspective. There is a hunger. This is a tradition that doesn't wash off. When you grow up Mormon, this is a huge part of your identity. You've given a great deal of your life to it already by the time you're 21, and then you go through this nat- you know, very natural human process of maturation, of sorting out who you really are. Um, you know, the choices have been stark in the last few decades for people who aren't orthodox. Um, family rejection, institutional rejection, labeling. Um, and there are so many people who are hungry to claim a place that they can feel good about in this rich, robust, imaginative very powerful religious tradition, um, and, and they're starting to do it. You know, you have this blog, um, Ask Mormon Girl, and the subtitle is Unorthodox Answers from an Absolutely Imperfect Source. It's so interesting. Um, and so one of the categories, uh, also I just, you know, I feel like I might write you with my questions, even though I'm not Mormon, because you're very good <laughs> At responding to people's what's going on in their lives, um, you and I have great readers. My readers are so kind most of the time to the people who write in. It's very nice. But they really uh, they trust you, and they 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 bring their vulnerability. And so you you put things in in categories, or you file things under categories. And one of the big categories is faith transitions. 
And, you know, when I look at just that, that, that means in terms of the way people, what people have written to you about, it's everything from, uh, you know, their status vis-a-vis the church to a 12-year-old who says, I, you know, I'm really having big questions about my faith. And I, I feel like the way you talk about faith transitions is, uh, well, why don't you just say, when you use that phrase in the context of being Mormon— you know, what What do you mean? Because really, it it seems to me it's about growing up and and growing larger. It's not about transitioning out, which I think maybe in the mainstream culture where religious identity is so fluid, it might have more of that connotation. What I see a great deal of in the unorthodox sectors of the Mormon community is people who grow up thoroughly embedded in an Orthodox Mormon worldview, where most of their day-to-day contact with their families and the people they trust most, trust most, people they go to church with, you know, speak in very disciplined ways about um, what it means for the church to be true. That's a phrase Mormons say a lot. The church, I know the church is true. It's a very interesting phrase, but it sort of signals this total assent to the entire proposition of Mormonism as a whole. It's all okay. I'm totally on board. And then, you know, something happens. Um, and sometimes it happens, you know, a little bit down the line. Um, after someone has, for example, a young man has served a two-year mission from 19 to 21, he comes back, goes to college, encounters um, writings, and this is happening a lot now, even more with the internet, encounters materials that suggest that there are historical questions about the historical facticity of the Book of Mormon. Um, And suddenly, this ironclad, sort of monolithic approach to Mormonism, this all-or-nothing proposition, becomes um, unmanageable. Um, And people's entire worlds um, spiral when they take Mormonism as this all-or-nothing proposition. Um, And black or white thinking can be a problem inside Mormon communities, as it is inside many Orthodox religious communities. Women oftentimes have a slightly different experience. We are raised within this community. We feel a very loving sense of home. And then we notice, as we grow older, ways in which members of the community fail one another, ways in which the community as a whole um, marginalizes or penalizes, um, you know, feminists or uh, gay people. And again, it really sends our whole ironclad, monolithic, orthodox Mormon worldviews into a spiral. And there's a sense of crisis. A lot of people call it faith crisis because it feels like an acute crisis to a lot of LDS people. I've tried consciously to use the term faith transition um, because there is an other side to it. It is possible, you know, that one, and this is a classic experience of any person of faith. Yeah. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that your ship has to, you know, founder on the rocks. It's, it, you know you can walk through and the experience of reexamining the foundations of your faith can be nurturing. Um, It doesn't have to lead only out of the church. It doesn't have to lead only back into total orthodoxy. There are so many more nuanced places faith can take us. And Mormonism is capable of sustaining nuance. And so when I speak or write about faith transitions, um, I'm trying to encourage this sense that life is full of changes and your faith, your testimony, 
you know, can go through changes and come out the other side in a positive place. Yeah. And so another very, very poignant and really feels important to me, something that's going on on your blog, is parents, often parents of um, gay and lesbian, LGBT Mormons, writing about, I mean, I'll just, you know, I, I pulled one down. So it, it, it's, this, it's this whole complex. It's this whole issue that is not just in front of Mormons, but in front of many traditions, you know, how to, this whole issue of gay marriage and um, the theology of that and the ecclesiology of that. But so you, I mean, you have people writing, here's one, a woman who wrote, I'm a Mormon mom and I don't want my gay daughter to bring her girlfriend home. Am I being unfair? What about my beliefs? Um, and she tells you the story, and and she's she's really struggling. And what is interesting about the way you respond to this and to others is you you affirm the struggle, right? You I mean you you encourage her to get support and to have people to talk this through with, and you also very gently um, point out you know what is probably at stake that she needs to consider, which is her relationship with her daughter, and 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 you honor the fact that that in fact is why she's asking the question in the first place. You know, I um, that that was a very important question that came to me. And every time any question comes to me and someone puts themselves out in so vulnerable position, I feel really deeply um, responsible and very honored. Um, there's a long tradition in Mormonism of, you know, person to person ministry, you know, visiting teachers are assigned mm-hmm. to go, you know, one woman visits. Another. So I think of it in that sense. I'm just a visiting teacher for the yeah, law. There's a tone the of intimacy to this blog. That's I think it's unusual. Yeah. So that makes sense. Yeah. When we do that, that's just a very Mormon thing. We get in each other's business. How are you really doing? And yeah. we minister to one another all the time. So I'm sort of that person for maybe some of the lost sheep on the internet. I don't know. It's, it feels like a blessing when the questions come, but mm-hmm. um, this one in particular struck me because a lot of the people who write to ask Mormon girl are, unorthodox Mormons who are seeking affirmation as they try and sort out faith transition or her coming to terms with just the human limitations of local faith communities and every local faith community has some but you know this was a case in which a very orthodox and conservative Mormon was struggling to come to terms and had written to me and I thought that showed a um, a very different outlook and approach um, and it recalled to me the experience you know I married outside the faith and right, your husband is Jewish. Yep, and mm-hmm. that's not a lot of choice. That's that's not a choice that a lot of Mormons make. It's a very unorthodox choice. Marriage has a very specific theology in Mormonism, and my choice to marry outside the faith was frankly just devastating to my parents. Mm. And um, and I watched them go through that, and we've come a long way since then. And um, and so I was thinking about them as I wrote back to this mother. Um, and realizing that, you know, the, the difficulty Mormonism faces in dealing with the fact that more and more people um, are aware that they are gay <laughs> and, you know, and we have to figure out how our community will receive them, support them, deal with them as it becomes increasingly more acceptable in wider society to come out. Um, it's hard for everybody it's hard for everybody. It's hard for the parents. Parents have so much responsibility within Mormonism since parenting is understood as this eternal calling. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And what you're doing is what God should be doing in this instance. I mean, every parenting decision has the weight of Godhood on it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, see, I get how what a heavy. <laughs> it's a heavy burden. Mm-hmm. It's a heavy burden. And so I wanted to be able to reach out to her and say, yeah, you, you, from your worldview as an Orthodox person, your daughter being gay has eternal consequences for you. Um, and I hope you'll come through to a comfortable place. But in the meantime, you know, I'm not underestimating how difficult that is for you. It's real. So again, you know, it's very widely known that the Mormon Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, was um, got really active in the Prop 8 uh, uh, drama in California, where you live. <laughs> and, <Yes>. um, <laughs> you know, we, we know, I think we know that story. I mean, I think that story has been told. What I have um, gotten from reading you this past year is is this very human uh, struggling, wrestling with these issues, discussing them? Um, you know, you you wrote a piece for religion dispatches about a meeting after Prop Eight was over, a, a really powerful piece about a meeting between a prominent member of Mormon leadership and thirteen gay and straight Mormons and. Uh, it was a place where, at the very least, people got to express their pain, and you had a sense. I had a sense from your report, which I think was from somebody else's report, but as close as you could get, that uh, that the pain was registered and taken seriously. Yes. <laughs> it was painful. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I um, my own experience was that after the excommunications in the early 90s, I continued to attend church and try and really, really make it work for me. And there came a point um, in the year 2000 when the church became actively involved in Proposition 22, a ballot initiative to um, prevent uh, same-sex marriage from becoming legal in California. Um, that I It kind of broke something inside of me. Um, I stopped attending church for six or seven years. I mean, I went occasionally. Um, my children, I was just starting to have babies at that point. I had them blessed in the church. But basically, every time I set foot inside a Mormon chapel, I just started crying. It was ridiculous. You know, it was just... And um, I got up the courage to sort of go back to church about three months before Proposition 8 was announced in California. Um, so I spent the next six months back out sort of crying again, trying to figure out what the heck. (laughs) Great timing. Um, But, you know, Mormons are very uh, well-organized people, and obedience has emerged as a major dimension of institutional Mormon preaching in the last decade and a half to two decades, obedience. And I know many active Orthodox Mormons who really wrestled with the church's involvement in Proposition 8 and continue to. And it shattered many relationships in California between Mormons and their neighbors for us to take this leading, very visible role in a very divisive and very personal political battle. Um, And there's been a lot of second thinking about it and 
I am gathering from things I hear in Mormons and other places across the country that the church is not becoming involved in state-by-state battles anymore the way it once did. And that is um, a tremendous relief to many people um, because the pastoral issues raised by, you know, the the presence of LGBT Mormons are enough for us to deal with. Um, Hmm. The political issues are a whole nother level. And how wise it, it is... Well, I won't say any more on that, but Mm -hmm. we have enough to deal with taking care of our own. So I want to ask you what's going on inside the Mormon world, the Mormon psyche, in this, what some people are calling the Mormon moment. Um, And very much out front of that is two uh, Republican, two two candidates uh, in the Republican primary, um, Mitt Romney, who... Is, has been very strong from the beginning, John Huntsman, who are Mormons. Um, you, you wrote somewhere, or you said on Talk of the Nation, a lot of us are white-knuckling it through the campaign. <laughs> and, you know, again, I don't, I don't think that's a story that gets told. So tell me what this feels like. What does it feel like inside the Mormon moment as a Mormon? <laughs> well, I, you know, I hear things from my, you know, my, my sweet Jewish in-laws and friends of theirs who, oh, yeah, everyone's convinced, you know, the church is really rooting for Romney. And that's not what I'm hearing from people who are more connected to the hierarchy. Um, and, and, and even I was with a gathering of Mormon scholars, a small gathering of Mormon scholars last weekend, and there was a point at dinner when folks from a range of places on the orthodoxy spectrum were sort of relating these stories. Oh, my gosh, I heard the Boston Globe is getting ready to do this story, and the New York Times has lined up this story. I mean, the fact is, as a fairly young religious tradition, Mormonism's history is very accessible. Right. Um, and the humanity, We know things about Joseph Smith that we didn't know about any of the other prophets before. About like, Abraham, yeah. you know? <laughs> if, if, if Abraham went to court, got taken to court for being a money digger, we don't know. We know this happened to Joseph Smith mm-hmm. because we have modern public records that tell us. And, you know, and the churches document its own history. So there is an infinite amount of cherry picking of embarrassing family secrets that could that could happen. Um, if Mitt Romney gets the nomination. And there are some major theological problems that the church has chosen sort of just sort of deal with by stepping beyond them rather than addressing them openly. For example, the segregation of the priesthood, um, which was implemented really in the late 19th century and maintained through the 1970s. Um, you know, it started in the 18... It wasn't, there were African-American Mormons in the 1830s who held the priesthood. And by just a series of historical leadership changes, circumstances, that was discontinued in the later 19th century. And then the priesthood was, was reopened to everyone in the 1970s. But the church has never dealt with the accumulation of, you know, pretty much racist folk doctrine that that happened over the years in Mormon communities to legitimate um, priesthood segregation. And there are a lot of feelings about that um, in the African-American community at large um, and among Mormons. So that sort of truth and reconciliation process mm. has never happened with race, has never happened with polygamy. Um, you know, there's still, a, you know, of course, a very contested uh, relationship around LGBT issues. Um, and... People are really nervous that um, all of these issues are going to be put front and center 
if Romney gets the nomination. So the white knuckling, the white knuckled experience is what what will they say about us and, yeah. and what will you have to defend or, or, or deal with? And will we have to sort through in public things we've barely sorted through for ourselves? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and then again, how many jokes will they make about, you know, Mormon underwear on late night television? <laughs> <laughs> okay, and, let's and, talk about the underwear because it, you're it so... It had to come. The moment had to come, didn't it? <laughs> Everybody I, wants to know. But what I like about you is that you you seem to be so tired of it being a joke that you want to talk about it. It's, you know, it's just so funny to me because yeah, I could I could write something anywhere, and you you're never so don't ever read comments online. There's not a lot of good spiritual practice happening in comments online in big public venues. But you know, write anything about Mormonism for the public, and at least thirty commenters are just going to say underwear, underwear, underwear. <laughs> just, it makes no sense. It's so fascinating to people. I grew up with garments. It's like that's just what Mormons wear. It's really not that weird to me. So you kind of compared it to other traditions. Have I mean, Sikhs have turbans, and well, there are a lot of garments you can think of, but they're mostly not underwear. They're headdress or well, I mean, you know, Orthodox Jews will wear, you know, um, oh, I forget the name, but the will wear. A, Ceremonial. I mean, some will wear, you know, tzitzit under their clothes, you know. But, yeah. you know, there, there are comparable, there are, there are comparables. Um, you know, I think what makes garments, and, you know, just for clarity, Orthodox observant Mormons wear very plain, um, very modest underclothing under their street clothes basically every day, you know, um, as a reminder of, promises they make when they go to the temple, sort of a ritual covenant to live a life of chastity and devotion to the church. And and the garments are there in this sort of foundational way. They're the first thing you put on to remind you, you know, mm. who you are underneath it all, mm. basically. Um, and, you know, but I think what makes them so curious to people is that it's this layer of difference that's worn very close to the skin, right? So it's not, it doesn't confront you head on. So there's this sort of are they? Aren't they? You know? Yeah, right. And also, there are so few religious cultures in America where there are um, dimensions that aren't shared with outsiders. Well, that's right. There's there's a secretiveness and a hiddenness about really essential things in Mormon tradition that does lend itself to this kind of speculation, right? Well, and this kind of suspicion. Well, that's right. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it reminds me of, you know, I spent some time in New Mexico over the summer. My husband's a professor of American Indian studies. And so we spent some time in Native communities. And, you know, look, there's rules when you go to Pueblos about where you go and where you don't go. Mm-hmm. And you don't go into the Kiva if you're a tourist, you know. Mm-hmm. And there are all sorts of stories, you know, Native people tell about outsiders who aren't entitled, who try and go into sacred spaces, you know, held by the community. And there are even tour guides who will, you know, as a Taos Pueblo's really darling, you know, younger Taos, you know, Pueblo citizen taking us on a tour of the Pueblo. And there were clearly things he just couldn't tell us about. And he said, I can't tell you about that. That's such a that's such an unfamiliar dimension of the experience of the sacred to, you know, 21st century American culture. Right, that there are things right. that aren't to be talked about except for in sacred settings. So that really adds to the mystery um, that that Mormonism is vested with. Mm-hmm. I like it when you write also about the Mormon Twitter knuckle and yeah. the kinds of things that happen when someone asks in public life, uh, you know, is is Mitt, so, so what was this that some uh, 
that one evangelical Christian leader endorsed Rick Perry saying that Romney is not Mormon enough. Um, yeah. he, he was talking, he wasn't, he wasn't religiously conservative enough, but you talked about the uh, profusion of, <laughs> of Mormon responses to that and actually the fun oh, that we was had Saturday. an amazing yeah it was this very um it was one of those very opportune political moments when a pastor in florida accused mitt romney of not being mormon enough and mind you mitt romney comes from one of the most established families in mormonism he's i mean i come from very regular mormons he comes from elite stock. Right. You know? So like, is this, I think, from what I, I mean, know, he's p- kind of part of what you might call a Mormon aristocracy, right? Abs- I never hear yeah, anybody writing absolutely. about this. At, well, I think I've written about it a little bit. John Huntsman is the same way. Huntsman definitely comes from a very connected elite Mormon family. Mm-hmm. Um, and Huntsman and Romney are actually cousin, distant cousins. They share an ancestor. And um, I think they both are related to Parley P. Pratt, who was one of the early apostles of the church who was murdered. And I mean, so they, they are rock solid. I mean, my people were sort of scraping by in southern Idaho. You know, theirs were at the center. They were important. Um, You know, and so here's this pastor in Florida making this very instrumental political sort of crass, you know, well, he's not Mormon enough. He's not, Mitt Romney hasn't been hard enough on social issues like, um, you know, abortion rights, um, because Romney does have this moderate past, which is not uncommon. Most, you know, Mormons and evangelicals have not done social issues the same way. And so the pastor was trying to exploit hmm. Romney's past moderation by saying he wasn't Mormon enough. Well, it just struck me as hilarious, especially this is coming from, you know, evangelical folks who, you know, in the past have tended to try and distance Mormons and judge us as a species of the other. Now he's weighing in on what it means to be Mormon. So <laughs> for the next 18 hours, you know, all these folks on Twitter, um, including a wonderful friend of mine, a humorist named Matt Workman, uh, who I've known since Brigham Young University, um, we just, a series of one-liners just rolled. Mitt is so Mormon, right? He'd make the Book of Mormon required reading at the Bureau of Indian Affairs, right? You know, <laughs> Mitt is so Mormon, he'd send out 19-year-olds as ambassadors on foreign diplomatic missions, right? Mitt is so Mormon, and some of them were sort of insider jokes. Right. And yeah, some I looked at them. Some of them I didn't get at all. You didn't get, right? Yeah. <laughs> there's what, Mitt is so Mormon, he'd have the elders quorum move him into the White House. I mean, there's a joke that you ask your, Mormons always ask their friends from the ward to move them in and don't pay for actual professional movers oh. you know you know i mean so a lot of them were inside but i mean it eight it went on for 24 hours i mean it was just hilarious um um and there's a wonderful sense of you know again this points to the fact that mormonism is a culture it's a language for a lot of us who grew up in the united states in with you know within mormon settings um and that we do have a sense of humor about ourselves <laughs> so how um, we talked about you as an unorthodox Mormon telling your story, uh, chronicling what's happening in the world, and all of that actually becoming part of the Mormon, the unfolding of Mormon story. How do you think about uh, this this appearance of of Mormons in political life in a very very prominent, serious at a very at the highest level? Um, how is that? Um, what part is that playing in the unfolding Mormon story? What's it, what's it doing to the story? Well, it, you know, for the past 50, 60 years now, there's been a pattern of out migration 
from the Wasatch Front, from the Book of Mormon Belt, um, to cosmopolitan centers across the United States of Mormons seeking education and attaining professional advancement. So, you know, the rise of figures like Mitt Romney is sort of like the rise of the Marriott Hotel chain, you know, which is also Mormon-owned. I mean, this is sort of I a natural consequence. <laughs> oh, next time you check into a Marriott, open the, open the bedside drawer. Okay. There's a Book of Mormon there. All right. In every Marriott around the world. It's very handy for us. Oh. So, yeah, next to Gideon's Bible, there's a Book of Mormon. The Marriott's are Mormon. Um, you know, I mean, this is what happens when, you know, highly disciplined, highly motivated people go out with a sense of mission and ambition and purpose, you know, to and move out of the theocracy of the West and, and take over the rest of the world. Uh, but in some ways, the, entry, the entrance of Romney and Huntsman especially um, into the presidential race has highlighted the difficulties Mormons still have in telling a candid, articulate story about ourselves. Romney um, tried during his last go-round in, mm-hmm. in 2007 to make a speech on the issue of religion um, and his religion of Mormonism and, you know, made some very, you know, plain statements about this is the faith of my fathers, I am a Christian, you know, can we leave this alone now? Yeah. Um, Huntsman has, you know, tried to make a place for himself as a very unorthodox Mormon, and he's also had trouble being articulate, you know, in his fir- in one of his first major interviews after announcing with Time Magazine, he downplayed his Mormonism to the extent where the Time Magazine reporter was sort of chasing him to claim whether or not he was a Mormon. And those of us who have known him or known of him all these years were scratching our heads, you know, are you kidding? <laughs> your dad is in like the quorum of the seven. Your dad's a big church. You're Huntsman. Everybody knows you. Right. But he was trying. You know, he's not highly observant. This is this is known in the community. And, you know, I, he was trying to find a way to represent, to say, I'm a Mormon, but I'm not an Orthodox Mormon. And his vocabulary failed him because, again, this black and white worldview, which has come from the insularity of the Mormon community historically, this notion of either you're totally in or you're totally out and an enemy, um, is crumbling, but we don't fully have the vocabulary for it yet, and neither does John Huntsman. He didn't know how to say, well, I'm an unorthodox Mormon. Everyone would say, well, of course, you know, like a Reformed Jew could say, I'm a Reformed Jew. I'm not orthodox. Right, okay, right. of course. We no, don't they have that say language. I'm a secular Jew. They can even say that. Still you be a Jew. There's a lot of flavors of Judaism and, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> and Mormonism, you know, allegedly you're either in or out. Mm-hmm. Not so. So this has been a very revealing moment for how Mormons are perceived, how we are able to talk about ourselves and how far we have yet to come in making our tradition legible to folks who don't belong. So... Um Polygamy is not really the interesting question. Underwear is not really the interesting question. Um, oh, it's interesting. Was, it's well, I mean, yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> it's inter- or what was the thing that came up in the last election? Something about in the scriptures, the relationship between Jesus and Satan, right? Oh, you, yeah, you know, there, there are things that get brought up. I mean, what, what for you, what would be the, a genuinely hard revealing question to ask of a Mormon candidate for president or a Mormon president? 
that might elicit a more, actually a more substantive answer? You know, obedience and conscience are issues that every um, thoughtful Mormon has to deal with. And there are a number of ways of reconciling um, obedience to doctrine and to instructions from an institutional church with the leadings of personal conscience. I know Mormons who deal with tensions all the time in a number of productive ways. Um, And those are not unlike the tensions that would face, you know, an elected leader. What do you do when the pressure of institutional power is on one side um, and your heart leads you another way? How do you manage that conflict honorably, with dignity, without resorting to easy black or white answers, all or nothing, in or out? Um, And that's really been a defining dimension of Mormon experience in the late 20th century. You know, again, as we've become more assimilated um, and as we've tried to live a distinctive spiritual worldview in the context of a broadly secular society, you know, how do we deal when our leaders ask us to support um, legislation in the case of, or, you know, ballot initiatives in the case of Proposition 8 that might jar against our conscience? How do we do that with dignity and, and honor? Um, that's the pertinent question, I think, to ask, you know, folks like Mitt Romney and John Huntsman. Um, I think what makes it especially significant is that both Romney and Huntsman come from elite families where they've had a lot of access and privilege based on their connections to institutional power in the church. Um, So, you know, matters of conscience, how they've resolved those for themselves. um, I would be really interested in having that kind of a conversation with Hmm. either of the candidates. Hmm. So I want to just ask you as we um, as we wind up, um, I'm just really curious about you know how you hold all these things together. I mean, so one question would be, you, your mom is a professional Mormon. <laughs> um, you, you came from very <laughs> She's devout. She's really good family. at it. Yeah. So <laughs> so what happens back in her world? When you when you when you write what you write when you when you put this expansive worldview. Um, out into so many media. No one ever asks to have a writer in their family. <laughs> no one. <laughs> you know, and I think um, my parent. I, you know, Mormonism is a community in which it's an insular community. There's a lot of talk. There's a lot of we look out and look after one another and try and figure out where everyone's kids are landing and if they did it right. Uh, I think my parents have handle themselves with a lot of calm and dignity as I've lived a publicly unorthodox or, you know, voiced publicly unorthodox way of being Mormon. Um, but, you know, we're coming to a very different place. My father has Lou Gehrig's disease. Oh, gosh. And, I'm sorry. Um, oh, no, it's, it's, it, that happens in every yeah. life. Yeah. And, you know, there's this, and my father and I didn't really speak. I mean, we interacted, um, you know, and family holidays and got along. But I don't think my father really knew what to do with me. And, and he's a very loving man and a very wise man. But I think having a daughter like me was very difficult for him. 
and has been. And but we have this view we share as Mormons of eternity. And, you know, when it comes down to it, we know that God is merciful. Things may take a while to iron themselves out, but that those bonds of family are forever. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> sorry, emotional again. No, Mormons yeah. cry. I've yeah. mentioned this all the time. People <laughs> need to know we cry. There's like a stack of six Kleenex boxes under the pulpit at my ward. But, um, <laughs> I my saw father, something where you were speaking and you reached for a Kleenex and said, oh, I guess Unitarians don't cry. Yeah, and I should be fair to the Unitarians. Like afterwards, I, in, in a nice little cabinet down to the right, they did have boxes of Kleenex. Okay. okay. so But Mormons just really waterworks, really okay. waterworks. That was one of the jokes. Mitt Romney is so Mormon he'll cry during his inaugural address. <laughs> but, um, you know, but, you know, in the last few months, my father and I have come to a much more peaceful place. That's just based on this loving acceptance that, you know, Mormons believe that families chose to be together on this earth. We knew each other before this life, and we came to earth to have experiences that would stretch us and challenge us. And I'm sure that being my mother and father, you know, being the very orthodox parents of of this writer, um, has stretched my parents as, you know, as it has stretched me. And, um, you know, as, as so often happens when a parent gets ill... And when a family faces death, you know, it all falls away. And what's most important is that we've shared these very sacred times together um, mm-hmm. in the context of our Mormonism. You know, my father baptized me. It was great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember reading about how your father read you the, you, he read through the Book of Mormon when you were seven, reading that story. Yep. I don't know if this is a hard question, but your Jewish husband... I mean, how how does he figure into this view of eternity? See, that's another one of those questions. We're just referring to eternity. God's merciful. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I um, I I made important choices um, about how to live my life at a time when the church was undergoing a lot of internal struggle. You know, with feminists, and I knew I needed a marriage that would keep me safe. Hmm. And I married outside the faith where, you know, whatever struggles I went through as a Mormon wouldn't, wouldn't impact the shape of the marriage. I've seen that happen to a lot of Mormons who come to a faith transition. Um, and so I feel really fortunate. I have a partner who can help me be patient with me and be, you know, a source of calm for me. Um, and, he, and he's done a great job. You know, he's an anthropologist, which always helps. Yes, (laughs) that would help. (laughs) Analyzing this foreign culture he's joining. Um, And, you know, he and I joke that a lot of Jewish people have a Jesus allergy. You know, it's just starting to get a little itchy when (laughs) Jesus comes up, Mormon culture. Um, So we have a great sense of humor and uh, together. And um, he's a tremendous ally. And I'm referring all the other questions to God. <laughs> okay. And you're raising your daughters with a lot of this tradition that you grew up in, right? Is that true? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's true. Mm-hmm. I, I badly wanted to pass down to them the most robust and positive sense possible of Mormonism. That's what we're trying to do. Okay. Well, I think this has been just great. Um, I cried a lot. It's <laughs> <laughs> all right. No, it's just... It's, sorry, what? Oh, yeah. You know, uh, we layer music in our show, and it would yeah. be interesting if there's music that's meaningful for you. Uh, 
I won't promise that we'd use it, but just for us to consider as we're... It doesn't have to be really overt either. It doesn't have to be, you know, Mormon hymns. But if you, if you, if you had a thought You don't want the Motab blasting through? <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that would be not. terrible. <laughs> yeah, that would really... But ugh. I don't know, just think about... Uh, okay. Just think about that. You want me to send an email? Yeah, whoever you've okay. been emailing with. Yeah. Trent, probably. Trent. Yeah, send it to Trent. Okay. I just want to, you know, I'm, I don't really, this is not really a question. I just want to read to you this beautiful paragraph from, from your book, from your manuscript in progress. Um, what a gift it was growing up in a world taught with conflict and luminous with meaning to experience time not as empty the days not as a sequence of identical rooms to be filled with whatever thin, bright fantasies I might collect from television sitcoms and project and project upon the sheetrock walls, but instead time as a vector of godly intention, the fractal plume of something expansive and in- infinite. Expansive and infinite, my purpose to discern the patterns of its unfolding. I really love that. I just want to tell you that. Thanks. <laughs> it, you know, I'm really grateful for how I was raised. It's, um, well, we use the word, we abuse the word special a lot in Mormonism. <laughs> Thank you for making a space where I could share some of that part of my tradition. Mm. Well, thank you. And um, I think we're going to put this on the air pretty soon. Okay. And we will, you know, we may have some questions and we'll, we'll keep you up on that and you'll know when it goes online and up and all that. But this has just been really fantastic. And I, it was really great for me. I mean, I've been reading you, I've been following you, but to just steep in this, I loved it. So thank you. Oh, uh, well, hey, namaste. <laughs> <laughs> namaste. <laughs> keep up the Vikram. <laughs> That's what really Hi, keeps oh. all of us sane. <laughs> oh, no kidding. Prayer and hot yoga, That's right? right. <laughs> The tradition behind the tradition. Seriously. Okay. <laughs> Take care, Thanks, Joan. I Christa, hope we meet in person it. one day. That would be fabulous. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.